Welcome to Flashpoint, the Fire Inside podcast. Featuring leadership and team building principles designed to ignite your inner fire and help you reach your full potential. On our program, you will learn from professional athletes, military and business experts, inspirational figures, leaders in the fire service, and other top achievers who have reached the pinnacle of success in their chosen fields. And now your host, international speaker and best-selling author, Frank Viscuso. So excited to have you on our show. Uh, I can't even tell you. Coach Chris Ayers is the head coach for Princeton Wrestling. And I just want to read a couple of things to the, our listeners before we get into this, Coach, because, you know, I know that your first few years at Princeton were pretty grueling. And uh, as a matter of fact, the first two years, you had a and uh, 35 record. And that's the program, ultimately the program you inherited. Yeah. You know, but in the last four years, I just want to read this off so people know what you've been able to do. You won the Ivy League title in 2020 for the first time since 1986 ending Cornell's 92-match and 18-year Ivy League winning streak. Placed 15th in uh, 2019 NCAA. Uh, and obviously, we had this championship season that was just cut short. But uh, you've had programs with uh, three All-Americans, with Patrick Brucky, Patrick Glory, Matthew Kal- Kalodzik. And I've been following these guys for a while. Um, you know, your program during a number uh, – Earned one bid to the NCAAs from 2004 to 2009, but followed by 38 bids to the NCAAs in the last 10 years. Eight top 25 finishes at the NCAAs. 2017, you sent seven to the NCAA championship, which was a program record. 2016 to 2020, uh, placed in the top five in the EIWAs annually. You took third in 2017, 18, and 19. And I honestly thought you were going to take first in 2019. We're going to talk about that. Yeah. Uh, won eight individual EIWA titles. I can go on and on, yeah. uh, but you were the head, you were the uh, co-coach of the year in 2017. And um, uh, honestly, it's awesome. What I love about, about the Princeton program is what it says right on your Twitter, which is working on the greatest college athletic program turnaround of all time. So I kind of want to start there and let people know that when you came, even when you started wrestling, young like I started when I was seven, I think you started what when you were eight or nine? Yeah, actually fourth grade. Uh, but I was kind of it was that's when it started because that was the school rule was it was fourth grade and it was a school program where I lived. But I wanted to start in kindergarten. I, I used to beg the coach, hey, can I come wrestle every year? And he said, no, you got to be in fourth grade. And I wrestled with my cousins and stuff. Uh, but yeah, so fourth grade is when I started. Well, that's awesome. And, and you played other sports too, or was this the one that you gravitated towards? Yeah, I, I jumped around a little bit and, and my interest in sports kind of jumped around as well. I, I played football and, and baseball. And the interesting thing was I was, I was pretty good at both of those things until I hit high school and I only weighed a hundred pounds. <laughs> um, so that kind of made me go into wrestling and I was a freshman. I was sort of into it. And then I got really into it after my sophomore year. Um, so I really got passionate about it late. Um, I always worked hard, and but it wasn't my only sport. Um, I actually, I actually liked football the most, to be honest with you. Um, going through grammar school and up to freshman year, then I just, you know, I was just too small. Well, you know, and a lot of our listeners are obviously they have young kids. I have young kids, uh, two of them that 
even today, I mean, people should know if they're listening to this in 2022, that this is happening, you know, right at the, uh, maybe hopefully the tail end of the COVID-19 pandemic. We've been dealing with this for a few months, but my kids the entire time have not stopped training for baseball. That's their sport. And, um, you know, we were out today, we were on a field, there were four fields. We're on one field. We played for about an hour and a half. It's, it's a pretty hot day out and there was not one other person out there playing and I'm trying to teach them the work ethic that it takes just to get better in anything. And when I was wrestling, when I was young, when I was their age, um, I didn't know you could do it year round. I mentioned just before we started the call, my father said, uh, wrestling season starts in, in, in a week. So why don't you go out and jump rope and start getting ready? That's how it started for me and my brother. And we didn't even know it was an option, by the way. It was just like, you're wrestling. He just wanted us to be busy. But, uh, you know, I was an average wrestler. But to this day, I can tell you that I carry life lessons, which I think is why I'm a fan of the sport still to this day. But I carry life lessons uh, that have stayed with me forever. And you could probably say the same because I know you had a good high school career, but you never placed. Um, and then you were a walk-on at Lehigh and you end up being one of the best wrestlers that ever went through Lehigh program. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, I don't know what it is about me. I, I, I feel like on a long enough, on a long enough timeline because I have a good work ethic um, and I'm able to withstand some things. I have pretty good, what I'd call perseverance um, that I just feel like I'm going to be successful at some point. And so it's happened really twice now. Uh, it happened in my athletic career um, and it and also happened in my head coaching career. But yeah, in high school, um, what happened was I was kind of into it my freshman year. I was, I always like won counties and stuff when I was in elementary school, got into high school. I sort of was a freshman, you know, I used to be a hot shot. Now I'm a hundred pound freshman. Um, and so, you know, I wasn't the hot shot anymore. That was a blow to my ego for sure. Um, so I was kind of okay my freshman year. I was about 50, about 500. My sophomore year, I actually got hurt um, and couldn't finish the season. But then my coach, you never know when something will impact an individual and change them. That thing for me was my coach took me to the Olympic trials that were in Philadelphia. And what happened was this guy named Sergei Belaglazov, he's a Russian actually, who actually moved to the United States and he was coaching at Lehigh at the time. And what happened was he did a clinic and he's, he's arguably the best wrestler ever. I think he's a seven time world and Olympic champion. Um, he was doing a clinic and he was doing things I didn't know you could do. Like the technique blew my mind. Yeah. I, and so I saw him, I swear that was like the pivotal point for me where I was like, I thought wrestling was a fireman's carry. You do a stand up to get out. And, you, you know, you run an arm bar or a cradle. Uh, you know, I had maybe a few more techniques, but that's how simple my mind was. And then I saw this guy doing things and he looked like a he looked like an artist. So from that point on, when I saw him, I got I got so obsessed with the sport. I actually followed him around at clinics and stuff. By my senior year, I was very good. Um, I was undefeated until the region finals. And I trained re really, really hard. Um, in my mind, I was like, I'm going to win the States. There's no doubt about it. I've done all the work. I was so confident. And then I lost. 
So I lost in the, in the region finals in overtime or something along those lines. For some reason, it, it like ruined my world. And so then I had trouble continuing to compete. Um, and I didn't place in the state. So long story short, um, I go to Lehigh. I went to Blair for a year. Uh, that was pretty transformative too. Um, a lot of it was physical maturity. I was the same height then. I weighed 135. I got to college. I was an All-American at 157. Um, so I, I really was physically, and I think I was mentally a little immature too, competitively. But then I got to Lehigh, um, and things started to finally click for me, especially from a competitive standpoint. Something I learned, and, and I still use it to this day, you can use it in business or life or whatever. You can do all the preparation. Nothing is owed to you when you step into the competitive ring or, or in your case, into the fire. You have to be able to – that preparation allows you to have a chance to be great in competition. The mistake I was making in high school was I thought the preparation guaranteed the success. So when I wasn't successful, it shattered that whole thing. And you know what I did? I said, poor me. I said, I worked so hard and I didn't get this. That's crap. And I sort of, I sort of, I sort of threw in the towel a little bit. It was like a very immature in college um, that I got, I got over that. So maybe cause I lost a little bit more, uh, right. but you know, I got used to wrestling back, but I, I, when that's my biggest regret in my whole wrestling career was how I handled the postseason in high school, but it was the greatest learning moment. Like no matter how much preparation, if you're a lawyer, you still got to go in the courtroom and, and compete. If you're a firefighter, you still got to run into the fire and you got to figure out how to get the job done. And so that was the biggest thing I took. Um, and I think that was the biggest change for me was the physical maturity. And then also that competitiveness, like you got to compete, um, that allowed me to be very successful in college where I was just okay in high school. I love, I love what you said there. I love how you, you said it, it, it doesn't guarantee a victory. It just gives you, ultimately, it just gives you a good chance. Yes. Uh, I know one of your mottos and a quote that I think your staff uh, use regularly is find a way to win. <laughs> it's easier to find a way to win if you've done the work and you have the tools, yep. you know. Now, I'll tell you something interesting. See, I, um, you know, the Edge Wrestling Club, I'm sure, uh, the Monaco Brothers. Well, I, I wrestled, um, my senior year was 1986, and that year my father uh gave me the opportunity to go wrestle at the club when it was in the basement of Ernie Monaco's house. So I'm one of the original, probably eight guys that are part of this club. And I don't think I belong there because everybody else was so much better. But for, so here I am in the room. I go there for the very first practice. Carl Monaco and John Monaco, who are both multiple time state champions are in a corner while we're wrestling in this little basement, the six or eight of us, they're in a corner for about 45 straight minutes doing a single leg takedown over and over and over and over and over and over again on each other. And I'm thinking in my head at the time, now Carl was my weight class, by the way. And Carl was kind of like, like your assistant coach, Joe Dubuque. He, he struck fear in people, you know, but I'm thinking in my head, why is he over there wasting his time doing this simple, basic move when he's one of the best takedown artists in the state at that time? 
and I, you talk about not being mature enough. I, I didn't have the maturity to think that's why he's one of the best because he's doing it and doing it and doing it. And I live down here, um, you know, in Tom's river and uh, we have another uh, wrestling club down here that you'd be familiar with, with, uh, with uh, the Rivera family and, and Frankie Edgar. And, you know, I, I brought my kids there early on when they were wrestling and, and I see the same thing. It's a lot of the same stuff over and over and over again. I'm sure you're familiar with all these clubs. I'm sure you got relationships oh, yeah. with all yeah. these guys. I but love Steve. He's awesome. Steve is a great guy. He's, awesome. He's a great guy. And what his son did, you know, I want to talk about, about like, uh, cause I, I put his son in the category that I guess I would with uh Kolodzik, where I think yeah. both of them had a really good chance. Actually, let's talk about it now. Here we yeah. are. Um, we are in, in, the 2019 season leading into 2020, we're a week away from the NCAAs, maybe two weeks, COVID-19 hits, and they shut sports down. Steve Rivera's son, Sebastian, ranked number one in the country, just beat a couple returning national champions. Matthew Kolodzik is definitely a front runner. He was on a red shirt, right? He came out of that, I guess, to help the team because you had an injury. Yep. And he's a senior, right? So he won't have a chance to compete again. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, we're, we're, we put in a waiver in the NCAA for hardship, but it's probably, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm tampering my expectations by saying it's unlikely. So if it happens, you know, it's a big celebration. But, uh, you know, I, yeah, we'll see what happens. But it, we're trying to get him his year back. I hope you do. I mean, because yeah. what a great wrestler. I mean, I've, I've loved watching him wrestle. So just very tough. Um, he, he guts out the matches. It's outstanding. But what appeals to me about this story, again, is the life lessons you learn and the character you build to where he could have just sat it out and said, you know what, I'm just going to come back in 2020. But he chose not to. And can you talk a little bit about how that all went down? Yeah, so uh, it was pretty... I love my team. Uh, we, we just were on, a, I had to leave early. We were on a call with our whole team in relation to, you know, uh, what's going on with the civil unrest right now yeah. uh, in the rest of the country. Um, so I love these guys, but you know, this is another example with Kolodzik and, and really Mike D'Angelo. Uh, so Mike D'Angelo was ranked in the nation. He had won the Princeton open. He was an NCAA qualifier, you know, his dream, his dreams to be an all American. He was having some shoulder issues uh, popped out at Midlands. Um, and then, you know, he was kind of doing good. We were going to sit him, but he was like, man, I got to get out there my senior year. I got to, so we go to UNC, he gets into a scramble against NC state, you know, as a coach, I, I regret wrestling him, but it's one of those things gets into a scramble, you know, pops his shoulder out again. So now we have this situation where Mike actually, you know, he's, it's, it's not over yet. Right. So this is where it gets interesting. So we go back and we don't really know what's going to happen. And I just, I just feel like this thing has happened twice. We're in a bad place. Um, you know, Kolodzik's sitting, he's beaten a lot of the top 10 guys. Uh, I think he beat four of the top 10 guys. Um, so we're looking at it. We're going, yeah, Kolodzik could win it. So for D'Angelo, he didn't really know what his situation was, but we had a conversation. I said, do you think you can get what you want? Do you think you can be an All-American? And he's like, I don't know if I can. He's like, but we have no other option. And this is the exact, and I said, 
we actually do have another option. And I said, Kolodzik. And I said, here's the deal, Mike. If you say that you're going to make it, you're going to do, if you say you want this chance at the end of the year and you're going to do everything you can to get this chance and you think you can get what you want, that's what's important. Um, you know, we're with you 100%, but no, that Kolodzik's in the sidelines. He said, I want, he goes, I want what's best for the team. I think it's a long shot for me to make it to NCAs in place with my shoulder. I think Kolodzik should come out. So now we've got, I actually don't know if I've ever told this story publicly. So now we have uh, Kolodzik. Now I'm going to bring him in. He doesn't know what we're going to talk about. Now Kolodzik too has spent the whole year. He's had a great year. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and he's, he's really good. Like, but he could design his own training basically, but he was with Reese in our RTC. So he was having a phenomenal year getting better. So I pull him in and I, and I talked to the staff and I, and I said to the staff, I said, no way, no way Collage is going to come back. Right. So, so just because it's, we, we really have, we can't even send them to the next match, which is Harvard and Brown. Cause he's got to get more matches at a tournament so he can get ranked so he can earn the, the conference a spot. So, even the first set of matches, we sent him to wrestle unattached to the tournament. Anyway, I pulled Matthew in. I said, hey, Matthew, you know, we set out with this plan for you to take this Olympic year. You got this last chance qualifier coming up. I said, here's a deal for you. Um, you know, if you say no to this, I'm all, I'm all with you. I'm not telling you to do this. I just want you to know this option exists. I said, Mikey D hurt his shoulder. He's willing to sort of step aside to allow you to come in and, and finish the year. And, um, and, and I also said, you know, well, you look at the guys that are, are ranked right now. Um, you know, I think you could win an NCAA title as well. Uh, what do you think? And he, and I swear, I thought he'd be like, well, let me go think about this. Or he goes, let's do it. So it was a really interesting thing on both sides to see one kid give up his career Really, I mean, we would have stuck with Mikey D. If he said, I'm going to try to do this, we would have, we would have hung, hung in with him. Um, he had to get surgery. In the end, it was bad. He had to get surgery. Yeah. Um, and, and then on the other side, we have Kolodzik, who, who's, who's you know, took, taken his whole year. He hasn't been with the team, essentially. hasn't traveled, nothing. And we're asking him to cut his season, really, more than three quarters, just to eliminate it. And you know, he says for the team and for the opportunity to win NCAAs, he says, let's do it. So I was really proud. There's really two good examples of guys making sacrifices right. for really the betterment of our team. Um, and I kind of put this picture in the back. That's us winning the Ivy League title. And you can yeah. see uh, D'Angelo is actually holding the Ivy League title. And to, the, to this shoulder, there's Matthew and Glory. Yeah, so, so pretty cool. Like, uh, that's what I think about. And, and you know, Mikey – could have got an extra year, uh, but he's got it. He's, he's doing good with like his job options and stuff. He's, he said, you know what? I'm good with what I did. We won, we won the Ivies. I had a lot, I had a lot to do with that. Um, he's like, I'm good. And so that made me feel real good about our decision and then where he stands. Cause he was a big, huge impact on this program. So that's how we got to Kolodzik wrestling at the end of the year. Well, yeah, thank you for sharing all that. I have to tell you something that uh, I thought was – because we're talking about Kolodzik, you can't talk about Kolodzik without talking about Kolodzik versus Ashnault and the battles <laughs> that those guys have had. Amazing battle, really, honestly. Like, anytime you guys got together and wrestled against Rutgers, I thought 
first of all, who from New Jersey would not want to see this match? Everybody, I mean, everybody wants to see it. But what's interesting is in the last one, I want to tell people the story. I know that you were saying that you felt that Ashnault was not going to score one point. Uh, Kalasic, uh, let, let up- me clear. Let me clear this up Please because, do, it's, because been, it's been it's been construed a little differently, okay. and I almost got I almost was right even though he got the backwards. I said that Ashnaught would not take him down. Okay? Yes, so yes, to be clear. Let's now, be but, clear. But here's the part that I want to get to. He ends up scoring ten points, <laughs> and and of course he gives the you know the infamous <laughs> you know to you. Yeah. Um, but what I like about this was that on the next day, I guess you were at a wrestling clinic or something with a little kid and he does that to you. And then yeah. you take a picture of him doing it and you post it, which, which I honestly, I, t- I screenshotted that, sent it to a couple of friends of mine whose kids wrestling. I say, man, this coach seems really cool. And that was just a, a great moment that you said, yeah. it, you know, it's just, uh, it, it's a family, it's a wrestling family. And I know mm-hmm. sometimes it gets heated, but at the end of the day, uh, I like that. I really appreciated that. Here's well. Here's the thing. I I I love it, man. I love that Ashnault did that. I love that. You know, I don't love that that Colo didn't win. I mean, obviously, I hate that. But you know, I love that that little kid came in the next day. He's actually my he's actually my son's best friend. <laughs> that kid that did this is my son's best friend. So he came in right away. That and we were running practice. He gave ten. It's all good, man. I mean, like it's wrestling, great. wrestling. Uh, it's getting better. Used to be this thing like, hey, we're going to keep it a secret. This is our secret little club, and we're going to be tough, and we're not going to let anyone in on it, and we're not going to have any fun at all. It's going to yeah. be, you know, it's going to be this miserable thing, and if you can endure it, then good for you. But if not, then uh, you're not in it. So I think with what we try to do, if you follow our social media, is um, honestly, we try to have fun. Um, and also we just try to highlight our program and our guys and it's just silly to not, you know, what can you do for wrestling? How can you grow wrestling? How can you grow anything? How can you grow your company? You got to put yourself out there. You got to real. you got to work hard. We work hard. I mean, we have a promotion schedule that's long where we have something every day and we, and we, and we go into that and we have to have new ideas. We got to figure it out, but we post pretty much every single day we have something some content that we're putting up um but that's what wrestling needs like i mean it needs, it. It needs well, anthony ashnault doing that well that's you know? a, the thing about the ashnault and matthew about them i mean you're at the time they are the number one and the number two ranked wrestlers yeah. in the country and here they are from princeton and Rutgers. and how could you not be proud of that of what you're building with your program you know you got pat glory i mean you got some studs mm-hmm. right now and that's actually where I want to go with this conversation is, again, forging this winning culture yeah. um, and how you got there. One of the reasons I, I would assume is bringing in your staff like like Joe, the, the original exotic Joe, I guess we'll call him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, Joe Dubuque, you know that you know he loves wrestling. Now, I, I'm familiar with his name, obviously, being a wrestler from uh, New Jersey as well, because he's I mean, here's a two time NCAA champion from our state, but also he's posting on social media last week, his young son wrestling with his, his wife in the garage for 30 minutes. You probably saw all that. So, um, but talk about your staff. Let's talk about the staff you pulled together and I guess we'll start there. And more generally, I think that people ask me a lot. Um, I get this question all the time. 
you know, you brought up at the beginning of the conversation, you're, uh, you know, you're 0 and 35. And really, I think it will be uh, when we're said and done, it'll be the greatest athletic college turnaround in history. How'd you do it? Or how did you do it? The main thing is like, I don't really think I did it. It's we did it. It's people. That's the main thing you need in, in the organization. The problem was my first year was I had one assistant coach, you know, and I could have had three is the allotment for the NCAA. And, you know, you need three coaches. I only had one. How do I get three coaches? Well, I need money. So I got to go get support from my AD to let me go a lot, get, get the money. So I got to pull him in and he's got to be my friend and we got to work on it. Then I got to reach out to, you know, a bunch of alumni. Um, for Joe's position, we had to raise a million dollars. And that's how it works at Princeton. You have to endow the position. So we raised a million dollars in one year um, to, to hire Joe Dubuque. And so um, our staff is, was the first people along with our alumni base that helped us get to where we are. Uh, really started with Sean Gray. Um, well, I mean, even going back to Andy Lozier, who's now the head coach at Davidson. Um, he was a D3 head coach who took an assistant coach in D1 because he wanted to be part of D1. We really kind of built this together, uh, the first phase of this. And a lot of stuff that he did is still in our program. The staff we have now, they're like, it's the all-star team. I mean, Sean Gray was associate head coach up at BU. Um, he was a two-time All-American at Virginia Tech. We actually wrestled together at Blair. He was a freshman and I was a PG. Um, so brought Sean in, another Jersey guy. Uh, we got the second assistant funded. Uh, so we started to bring in better second assistant. I mean, I'm sorry, volunteer assistants, uh, not second assistant, volunteer assistants. So that's where we got Heflin which eventually became Nate Jackson. And then we hired Joe Dubuque. So Joe Dubuque came right after Sean Gray. So we went from a staff of one, uh, two, to a staff of four, and four of the best coaches in the country. Let's make no mistake about it. Joe Dubuque is an associate head coach. That's his title. Sean Gray is an associate head coach. That's his title. They should be head coaches. I hate saying that because someone's going to you know, snatch <laughs> him up. But what our situation is, is we have three head coaches. Why is it good? They, we challenge each other. They don't just, they don't just, you know, they don't just like look to me and listen to what I say. If they don't like what I say, we have a conversation about it. It's one of the best things I think about our staff is like, they'll tell me, Hey, I don't, you're wrong. <laughs> you know, we think you're wrong. And I'll be like, okay, let's have a courageous conversation about it and see what's right. And so I love that um, piece of our staff, how we just interact. We, it's, it, we, we have a good interaction. I also, so the staff is amazing, but that's our culture too. I just want to bring up one thing that yeah. we believe, um, that I believe it's my style, I think. And it's kind of what's been set into our program. So I'm the head coach, whatever. It's not a dictatorship. It's a partnership with all of our guys. If, if, if someone, if, if, if someone's just waiting for you to tell them what to do, I mean, that's just the worst. Um, and, and I just don't think that person can be effective to their peak. What it has to be is a back and forth. It has to be a partnership. Yeah. And so we, we've had some situations where it wasn't a partnership in some areas. I don't want to get into details, but, and it didn't work. Just, it just wasn't working. And so that, that person wouldn't fit in our organization. Um, and so the kids, well, I hope the kids know that they have a voice 
And so, I mean, our captain, Pat Brucky, we kind of joke because we have this environment, he'll come in and give us talking tos <laughs> you know, as an athlete say, Hey, you guys need to be better at this thing. And so, um, that comes from the staff. I think we show that by example. We're willing to listen um, and and work with people. And we do it with each other, too. Um, and so first thing was setting that staff, really. And then how we interact with each other, I think, builds the program for sure. I love that. I love how you talked about courageous communication. It's something I talk about as well in my books and seminars where I say dialogue, discussion, and debate. is That's how you solve real problems. And that has to start with respect. You know, and we, you know, you mentioned the civil unrest that's happening uh, in the country right now. And, and one word, you know, I have 60,000 people that follow my one social media page, Step Up and Lead. And I basically said, I was talking about respect, saying it all has to start with respect. And I asked people to, if they agree with that, if you can respect the opposing point of view, even if it's not yours, just write the word respect, nothing else. And hundreds of people are just writing that word respect. And, and, and then you can have the courageous conversations if you know there's respect. And, here, and here's another thing. I mean, it, it makes no sense for anybody in a leadership position to surround themselves with yes men, right? Because if two of you agree on everything, one of you is just not necessary, right? Yeah. But if you can put your ego aside, I love what you're saying, and, and you can have your captain or one of the – other coaches come up to you and say, Hey, I think you're wrong here. That's a beautiful thing. So I'm glad you have that. Now take me uh, through what it's like in your practice room in your wrestling room. Is it, uh, I mean, is it something where you just, everybody just comes in, you get to work. Is there, does somebody get up and say a few words? Do you have a certain format that you use that you think works and don't give away yeah, any so, secrets now? Yeah, no, I'll keep, I'll keep the secrets under wrap, but, um, Generally, uh, the beginning of practice. So, so it's about communication where sometimes I fall short. Like, so it's pretty funny. We have a lot of, you know, there's 32 kids on our team. We probably at any given time, we're probably recruiting 50 kids between two classes. You have parents. So, so it gets, the circle gets very large. So sometimes communication, but you know, this one-to-one -one can be lacking um, so we try to do that as much as we can, but sometimes we miss the boat. But in general, every day we'll say something at the beginning of practice. Just to, one, they get a practice plan every week on, on Saturday or Sunday. So they know what the week's going to look like. I think that communication is really important. My coach wasn't that good at that, and it bothered me because I didn't know how – I needed to prepare mentally for the week, and, and I didn't get that. So it's like I kind of walked in the practice, and then it was like, okay, guys, today we're doing, and then it was like, man, I don't know. Okay, now I got to get mentally ready for that. But when I send the plan out to the guys, it has not a lot of detail, but they have a pretty good idea of how hard it's going to be. Right. Um, and so then they can sort of prepare their week as well and their minds for those hard practices. They come in, uh, they sort of, this was a funny thing. I was like the stickler for time because my coach was a stickler for time. If you weren't on the bus on time, he'd leave and you'd have to find your way to get to the bus. So I kind of took that with me. So when I first came to Princeton, um, classes end at 4.30, practice starts at 4.40. And I would get infuriated because at 4.42, 4.41, 
And now I'm pissed during practice because two guys are late and it throws me off. And at, at some point in my second or third year, I just started asking him, I'm like, why, why are you so late? He's like, well, coach, you know, I'm all the way over there in campus. The lab finishes. A lot of times my professor keeps me after I got here as quick as I could. You could see I'm sweating. So what happened is I just got flexible and I was like, we started around 440. And so that was a weird thing for me to adapt to them. I mean, everyone's funny about the time thing. There's even, even in our youth club, there's a coach that calls it Lombardi time. Like you got to be five minutes early. Our guys just couldn't make it. <laughs> like that right. was the problem. It wasn't like, wasn't like they're blatantly being late. They're, they go to Princeton, they're Ivy league kids. They they're type a totally, yeah. but they they're trying to get there. They just can't do it. So we got totally lax. So we start around four forty. I generally talk to them um, about what the practice is going to look like. Now it gets a little more specific. They have a general idea coming in. Now it gets specific. I might've made an adjustment. They might've looked tired. I might say I'm way pulling back today. I never really ramp it up more. Uh, I sort of want them to know what to expect uh, that way. Um, then we, they warm up on their own and then the rest is pretty structured depending on what year time of year it is and how long it is and what we're focused on is also dependent upon the year. Generally do some drilling and then the live has a lot of variation. So it's a pretty standard, I don't know, practice is what I'd say in D1. I think that the, the, the art of it and the genius, I shouldn't say genius, I'm not saying I'm a genius, but I think where you see the results is the plan. So basically the year plan, uh, not specifically that practice, but how you plan each week, how you right. make adjustments. Right. Um, and so – that's, you know, you, you know, it's good to know what your strengths are. I think that's what I'm good at. I'm not a, I'm not an on the fly guy. My Pat Santoro, the head coach at Lehigh, he's very good feel is what he'd call it. Where's the team at feel? I, I, I'm not great at that. So I have a plan. And then to get a feel, I have them fill out a questionnaire every day. It, it takes about three seconds. Just kind of gives me a bloop, you know, men, mentally, where are you at? Are you hydrated? How sore are you? Um, and then I get that feedback every day before practice and that's how I make my adjustments. So I'm not a field guy. So anyway, I think it's a pretty standard practice schedule. All right. That's great. And, you know, I was listening to a, um, special forces and Navy SEAL speak not too long ago. And one of the things that he talked about was why the Navy SEALs are so good. And he talked about how they practice, how they train. They train, you know, because you're going to play the way you practice. Mm -hmm. But one of the things he said that I found interesting, and we know this because he said one of the reasons they're so good is the selection process. You know, it's you don't you don't just say I want to be a Navy SEAL next thing you want, you're a Navy SEAL. Just like you don't say I'm going to be a Princeton wrestler next thing you know you're a Princeton wrestler. Mm -hmm. It's a process. What do you look for in a recruit? Obviously, you look for great wrestlers, but what, what is like the character, the personality, the type of kid that you're yeah. looking for? Do you like kids that, that play other sports? Do you like kids that are great academically? What is it? Yeah. So this is a great question. I get this all the time. Um, we don't have the luxury of like picking a certain type of kid. We recruit a transcript. I mean, Princeton's the hardest school to get into in the country. So first things first, in order for us to look at you, you have to be great at wrestling, and you have to have a great transcript. So my, like I said, we're probably recruiting 50 people. So we have about 25 guys in each class that fit that bill out of the whole country. So, yeah. uh, 
so but the good thing is hey the kid has straight A's and he's a great wrestler do you think that kid has some good character traits probably so the 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 process it works itself out for us we don't have our kids are awesome i mean like i have the best i don't get calls at 12 a.m or 2 a.m that doesn't happen for me um our our kids are doing they have super high goals in wrestling and they're pushing themselves to be the best in academics as well mm-hmm. and be the best for the rest of their life so for me i have a i have an interesting luxury where you know, no one's walking in my office and saying, hey, I got three Fs, I'm ineligible. That, that just doesn't happen. Yeah. So the process, the, 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 how tough the admissions is and how tough the wrestling is gives us great kids. Yeah, that's great so, insight, actually. So, it's, so for me, it's like that's the easy – it's hard because it's a small pool, but it's also we know what we're getting. Right. Um, and And – quite frankly, we really haven't gotten a bad kid or some kid were like, ah, oh, how did we, how do we recruit this guy? Right? Like, what were we thinking? It's just the, the process weeds out, weeds out the kids that aren't, aren't going to be positive or have those positive character traits. Let me ask you this coach. How, how does, what, how do you take a, a wrestler just a, Pat Glory, great wrestler. Um, I would think, and I don't like to say things like this being on the outside, but I mean, he, he's a kid that is, I would think is going to win a national championship at some point. He has everything he needs to do that. And hopefully, you know, I'm hoping he, he does it at some point. Yeah. And, but if he loses and, he, and he's lost matches like everybody does, but if he loses a close match, a tough match, a heartbreaking match, what do you say to him? What do you say to Matthew? What do you say to any of your wrestlers that lost the match to try to get them to put it in perspective? Hey, losses are opportunity. I mean, that's the biggest thing. Um, usually, so every every person's different, and you gotta you gotta feel where they are. Um, talking to Matthew's way different after a loss than talking to Glory. I don't want to get into their specific, no, but I know how to, I know how to handle each one. So when you take it, you, you the opportunity exists in the loss because their ears are open. When they're always winning, it's like you could sort of say in a match that maybe something went wrong. You could say, "Hey, we could work on this a little bit bigger," but it's it, it that that uh that pain isn't there from a loss. Right. A, a loss will cause you to change because, hey, look, man, y- y- you got to fix something. It's time to fix something on a loss. And I think that, you know, in life, that's that's also the case, right? Like the losses often teach you way more than the uh, than, than the wins. Um, you know, that's another thing for me personally is is I look for the struggle. And I think that's a pretty like different thing. I, I like if you look at our schedule, I, it's on it's an it's on purpose. Our schedule is ridiculous. I mean. We spent one weekend where we wrestled at Oklahoma State, flew back, and wrestled Iowa and Jadwin. Um, you know, we can learn a lot from that. I, I remember. I remember that. <laughs> I followed you. So, um, so, so what, what happens? I think they're just really receptive to listening. Spencer Lee has made Pat Glory so good. 
so good. He wrestled. Um, he wrestled Spencer Lee so tough. Yeah. You know, it, the the third, second, and third period were different than the first. Yeah, let's just put it that way. But and the second match was a lot different than the first than match the first. too, where he got beat pretty quickly. Um, in this match, you know, <laughs> if Pat would have had some more time, he he might still be riding Spencer Lee. <laughs> um, so you you mentioned um, Iowa. Iowa's a, a pretty interesting. I mean, they're tough. They're gritty. When you go in there, you know, it's like you're going into war, right? Because the crowd. I mean, oh, but. Yeah. There's something about their culture that I find pretty interesting too, which is Spencer Lee, uh, one of the greatest wrestlers, you know, ever. I mean, uh, you know, would he win two national championships? Uh, now he'll lose a heartbreaking loss, but then he'll go shower, come back out, and here he is supporting his teammate, sitting in the front row. And then you see them line up uh, supporting their teammates, even right after they lose. And I watch them and I'm thinking – you know what? There's something there. Uh, they're a family. That group of, of wrestlers is definitely a family. And it seems like you have that too. Is Does that happen organically or does that happen, you know, just uh, because of yeah. things that you're teaching them? That's a really hard question. Well, I think it comes from, it comes from the top. I think a lot of it is, and I think with their, when you speak about Iowa, I think, yeah, but it comes from the top for them too. I think the brands is and everyone yeah. it's what you're going to put into your guys. I think really is what makes it a family. They see what you give. They want to give back to you. It's a family in relation to, you know, you have tough times that you work through. Um, you know, even this call tonight that I referred to, you know, I let it off with like, I've had conversations with my family that have, ar have arisen through some of the stuff that's recently happened you're my family. Why wouldn't we have this conversation as well? And so I think you, the other thing is you care about more than the wrestling. So what we try to talk a lot is wrestling is a vehicle to really build strong character traits. I think you might've said it before that wrestling taught you a lot of, a lot of things that you use to this day. And everyone says that. And so for us, we, we like focus on it. We actually have a whole manual. It's called the higher standard manual where we work on character traits, you know, not specific to wrestling, specific to life if you want to be successful. And so when you start talking about building the whole individual and it's not just about wrestling and winning, I think you, you build something better than a sports team. Um, and, and, the, and Princeton does something weird too. I, there's, I, I can't explain it. It's the hardest thing in recruiting. These kids are they're just differently connected to the place. Um, and I even hate saying it sounds so sales pitchy, you know, like, like it, this place is special and I, and I hate saying things like that. Um, uh, but it, it really is. There's they how it's set up there. They almost all live on campus. It's just a really neat thing. And that helps build our community too. So it's pretty cool. I think that, you know, wrestling, the, the big, if you remember vision quest, you know, I got news for you. Auto wrestling is not a team sport. When you're out on that mat, you're out there by yourself. I remember I thought a lot about that, and I'm thinking, you know what? When I wrestled for Carney in 1986, it was a team sport because we were so close. But I could see how it could not feel like a team sport if you don't have that. What you're just talking about, that family where these guys are on the buses together, they're you know, they're sweating together, they have this, this these goals that they set together, and um, you know. But but what's your take on that? Do you see wrestling ultimately as 
it's obviously a combination, individual sport, team sport. But do you, as a coach now, I would imagine, do you solely see it as a team sport? Uh, no, I see. I see. It depends on the individual. Some individuals are more into the team aspect than others. I think. Yeah. I think that uh, we we actually so it's, we have this family thing, but we say what we say is usually what's best for the individual is best for the team, and we take a very individualistic approach to our program. You know that everyone doesn't have to practice every single day. There might be a day where a kid looks off to me. Maybe he filled out his thing and he's, he's kind of down where I pull him over to the side and I say, Hey, I don't think you should be here today. And he might go, Oh, I want to be here. And I'll be like, nah, you need to go home. And so it's, it's a little individualist. What I'll say though, I just kind of thought about your other question about building family and, 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 uh, working together. Uh, we have a really strong vision and, and a lofty goals. I mean, we did this my second year. I got into the, I realized pretty quickly that it, it what rest, winning in wrestling uh, in wrestling matches and building a team isn't about like teaching wrestling holds. It's about building your organization. So actually like I was a business major, but I started re- reading the Harvard business review and there's a lot of good stuff about organizational transformation. And one of the first things we did as a program is we did this exercise where you create a vision, you create your core values and you, you have this big audacious goal. Um, and we went through that process with the team. And so what happens is you get this vivid description of what you want the program to be. And it's really not like maybe you're going to reach it. Maybe you won't. It's sort of a guiding star. And everyone wants to work towards that, that ideal of what you want the program to look like. And what I think, you know, and this comes back a little bit to us, often we have these senior speeches and they kind of speak to this a little bit is, as a unit, we talk about that vision and they're all on board for what we're trying to do. We start in the recruiting process with that vision of what we want the program to be. Um, and so I think working together for that common good to reach that specific goal really bonds a team. What bonds them even more is when they see success and they're getting closer to it, right? There's setbacks along the way, but as long as you're still kind of creeping this way, I think that really solidifies the group um, where it's challenging is if you go like this a little bit and now, now it's, uh, is this really what we should be doing? Mm-hmm. And that's where leadership really has to kick in. It's easy when it's easy when things are going well and, and you, you know, you're winning and stuff like that. But I think sometimes you could take a dip and it's like, you got to step in and get them really focused on headed towards that guiding star again. But I think having that, spot to shoot for as a group really brings people together too. That's great. You know, uh, my experience with wrestling and the life lessons that I personally did take away from it. uh, One of them was just this simple concept that I could sum up in three words, which is win the position. And, you know, and I think, and I don't know if that's a term that, that you use. I just remember I heard it first from a coach on a wrestling match and it might've even been Steve Rivera where he talked about winning the position. And, you know, you have two wrestlers that are on their feet, one shoots in, somebody has to win that position. But as soon as that position's over, now you have to work on winning the next position. Is that the type of thing that you work with with your team was, hey, you know what, the the end of a failed strategy is the beginning of a new strategy type of concept. 
for sure. There's a lot you're hitting on a lot of really great things there. And I think with that statement, when the position is great, we talk about, I think you heard it, find a way to win. What that really means. I mean, when the, I think find a way to win is a little different than win the position. So win the position is, you know, the position and just be in that moment. That's what that's about. Be in that moment, figure out how to work through that position to get what you want in the end. What, what high school kids don't get and maybe lower, maybe a little bit lower level athletes is winning the position can take a long time. And sometimes winning the position is being willing to go one more second longer than the other guy's willing to defend or continue with his attack. Um, often ca- times people think it's like I hit high crotch, I grab other leg and I take him down and it's a two second thing where at the higher levels that might take 30 seconds to get through that position. Right. What I, th- so when the position is a wonderful term, I love that. And we, we say something similar to that. Um, I think we might even say when the, when the position find a way to win is a little different. Find a way to win is you're in a position. You're not really sure what the heck's happening. So it's a, it's an uncomfortable position. You're put in a uncomfortable, un- in a compromising spot. And then we use this for life a lot too. The coaches, we, t- we kind of joke about it. Everything we do, you, you know, your back's to the wall. You got to find a way to win. And so that means just being in the moment again. And now you got to be super creative. You got to kind of tactic, tactfully find your way to a new position where you're now going to win. Uh, or, it's, or, you, or you work your way. It's unfamiliar. And you work your way to familiarity. And then you can win. And so I think those are great terms. I love that win the position. I think it's a both are though being in the moment and dealing what's in front of you. One, you know the problem. Two, the other second one, find a way to win is 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 not knowing really the problem or the position. So I love that statement. I think it's mostly about solving a problem and being in the moment. That's great. Listen, I I, I just want to end with asking you this question because now I'm the coach of, of my boys baseball team. I've been coaching them for years in baseball. Um, and as the coach, I step on that field and I take off that hat and I put on a coach hat. And, and sometimes you have to wear them both. Like today when I'm out there alone uh, with my two boys, uh, my son, Nicholas, uh, at one point, who's, you know, he's nine, just got upset. And, it, and I'm, I thought he was more concerned about something with baseball. And I said, what's the matter? And I'm, you know, got the stern, but like what the coach look, what, what are you crying about? And he's not crying, but that kind of vibe is happening between us. And then I just took that off and I put the dad hat on, go, come here, come here. And he comes over to me, I'm sitting on the bucket and I said, sit right here. And he sits on my lap and I said, what's wrong? And he starts talking about something about a video game. It has nothing to do with <laughs> baseball. And then, I, and then I remind myself, I'm talking to a nine-year-old little boy right now. Yeah. The reason I'm, I'm, I'm bringing that up is because as a as a coach and as a dad i'm trying to find that way to to balance things i know your daughter wrestled right she just yeah. didn't she just win a a state championship yeah and my, my son wrestles too and your son. so he's he's 12 so so this is a two part question one is is do you find yourself uh having a difficult time balancing coach and dad uh with them or do you just take the coach hat off and just be the dad uh, I do both. It's tough. I, I can relate with what you're saying. Um, 
and you know your kids are different. I'm sure your other son's a lot different than yeah. so my daughter, she just wants wrestling. So like I mean we we literally we wrestle almost every day, her and I showing her technique. My son's kinda like into wrestling and then he's not into wrestling. So but he he's actually coming around a little bit too. So they're just so different. I, I mean I'm mostly I'm mostly dad but sometimes I get really frustrated when they're not listening. They can just, you know, they can just be a huge pain in the ass to be honest with you. Cause I'm their dad. Where as a coach, the kids relate to me differently where right. they, they, you know, it's like, there's a level of difference when, when, when I'm with them, but they're both, you know, here's the thing the the most amazing thing about this whole quarantine thing is we started right away just as a family routine that we would work out together, me, my son, and my daughter. So every morning we wake up at seven, or we, we work, I get up a lot earlier, but wake up at, they get up at seven and we work out as a family. And so six days a week we've been doing that. And it's been this amazing, amazing thing. I know that I'm going to cherish it for the, I, I would have never had this time with them. I know I'm going to cherish it for the rest of my life. I think they might cherish it. Who the heck knows? But, um, but yeah, so it, we our relationship has grown so much stronger. We, we bicker and stuff sometimes during it. We they're not always pretty. Uh, those morning workouts sometimes you kind of get at each other. But it's been really phenomenal. It's tough. I don't know. I'm, hey, if you figure it out, you let me know. No, I'm uh, no, how to listen, do it. Parenting. I'm not sure. Parenting's, parenting's tough. It is tough because you, you. I'm always wondering, am I doing it the right way? See, I'm a little bit when I when I coach one of my teams, for example. Um, uh, 12 players on the team and I will be more difficult on my own kids than I am on the other uh, 11, you know, and it's because I don't want them to think, Oh, this is easy. My dad's the coach, you know? So I'll say things uh, to my players. I'll say every single day, every practice, practice like you're trying to make the team practice. Like you're trying to earn your position. Now they're still young. I move them around a lot. It's not like I have a starter and a captain and all that stuff. Uh, it, this is everybody plays infield, everybody plays outfield, everybody will sit on a bench. However, you will have the kid that earns more time at shortstop or the ability or that opportunity to pitch a little bit more because they're putting in more time. But, you know, I want my kids to know your dad's the coach. That doesn't mean you get a free ride. You have to work harder. So if they don't, sometimes I feel like I'm a little harder on them. So they know that when their dad's not the coach, they'll be prepared for that. And I don't know if I'm doing it right. But I will, so tell, for, I will ask you this. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say it's so funny with my son. Like at wrestling, I can't – he won't listen to me. So he. So what happens is I'm the, I'm the coach of the youth team, me and Joe Dubuque and a bunch of the dads. It's really fun actually. We have actually a good youth team. So I'll, tell, I'll, I'll go over and say, hey, Joe, you got to go. You got to go help Atticus with this thing. And I'll ha- – Chase, his son, is more willing to listen to him, but he yeah. listens to me too. So like Joe will go work with my son and I'll work with Chase. So it's just kids are like, you got to figure them out. It's my daughter though. I can go, I can go hard on her. I can be tough on her. Um, But yeah, he's, uh, he's a little different. Go ahead. I'm sorry for interrupting. No, no, that's all right. Um, I had read somewhere that they say as a parent, now take the coach out of it. Now you're just a parent. Uh, My kids play basketball too, as an example. I don't even I don't know basketball. I never played basketball. I don't try to coach basketball. What I like is sitting in the stands and watching them play because there's no stress on me as the coach. But 
I read somewhere where they said the best thing you could say to your child on the way home, instead of critiquing them and saying you should have done this, should have done that, is I really enjoy watching you play. And the truth is, that's pretty much all I say to my kids about basketball, because I'm not their coach. But at the same time, what I find is I really do enjoy watching them play, because I'm not sitting here trying to wanting my kid to be the best kid on the court. The reason I want them playing basketball is just to keep in shape and have some fun. That's it. So for me to sit back there and just enjoy them out there with their friends, laughing, smiling. And sometimes I think if I were to ask them, you know, what do you like better, basketball or baseball? I don't know for sure if they would say baseball or basketball. They're great baseball players. They're average basketball players. But because of that one thing of how I treat them, maybe I'm a little more difficult with them here. What do you think about that advice for a parent? Because you wrestling parents, yeah. sure, could be in the stands. Uh, you know, as a coach, you might look at them and say, man, if they would just stay out of their own child's head, their child could probably be a much better wrestler. Yeah. And I so think all I, coaches can say that. Uh, with my son, it's totally all positive. When we leave, I just know him and like, I, I, it's all, it's all like, man, you did great. You did this good. Even if he didn't win, it's about being positive with him. With my daughter, she wants the, the critique basically. But I, but I, again, it's, it all has to be positive too. Like I usually, I almost always start with, Hey, you did a great job. She'll actually get mad at me because she doesn't think she did. And she thinks I'm lying to her. <laughs> so, right. so it's like, but I, I always, I, and, and to your point, I really do like watching them compete. Like you said, I do love it. I mean, it's just a neat thing to see your kids, you know, especially for watching them wrestle. Um, it's really neat for them to see them get a lot out of the sport. And so uh, I totally agree. Um, yeah, it's just, you got to enjoy the moments. And, and for I think too, I, I had success, so I don't really care like what they do. I think it's their thing totally. Like, yeah. It's not my thing. I think sometimes parents may attach their own self-worth to like what the kid is doing, yeah. which really messes me up. Like, I don't get that at all. Like, yeah. like for me, I'm like, this is her thing. This is his thing. I, I'm, I did it already. And, 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 and I've been lucky that way. So I feel fulfilled in my own competitive career. Um, but for them, it's just like you, it's for you. I don't, I'm not connected to that. So, yeah, that's the way I kind of view it. I love that. I love that. One of the things that I, I've even said this to my kids multiple times. Um, last week, here we are, we're out practicing. Uh, we're, it's just me and my two boys in one field. In the next field over is a professional baseball player that lives in our community that plays for the Texas Rangers. And he's there with his brother. And his brother's doing a little batting practice with him. He's, he's just hitting – and I bring my kids together and I sit them down and I say, uh, what do you see in all these other fields right now? What do you see? And they said, baseball fields. I said, yeah, who's on them? Nobody except over here. I said, right. I said, you have a professional baseball player over here doing the same thing you are. I said, now I want you to understand something. I don't care if you guys ever play baseball when you grow up. It has nothing to do with baseball. What I care about is you understand that to be great at anything, you have to be doing, putting in the work and doing what you're doing right now because nobody else is out here doing it. The only guy that is doing it plays professionally and you. So remember this lesson. 
is because what I'm trying to teach them is work ethic. Quite honestly, I hope at some point my kids turn to me and say, Dad, I want to I wanna wrestle. It's because I know what it did for me. But at the same time, I'm still trying to instill that same mindset of win the position and put the time in. And like you said, if you put the preparation in, then you have a better chance of winning. That doesn't guarantee the victory, but it just makes you more prepared to be able to potentially have the victory. I think in anything, too, I think it's simple. What happened at Lehigh, so I always had this thing, and, and I think that it's, it's so simple but it's so effective. Just, just do a little bit more than everyone around you. Literally. Like I tried to be the last person to leave practice every day. That was it. So they, you know, at practice ended, I would do some more things. So what happened was I wasn't in a room with state champs and stuff in high school. So I worked really hard. So when I thought state champs did so much, I thought like they did, they must be doing so much more than me because I, I can't beat them. The biggest epiphany for me to make growth was when I got into a room with a bunch of state champs and realized I could work harder than these guys. Then it, then it hit me like, I'm, it was like instantly I, I gained so much confidence, but I always did that. And I'll be honest with you. I don't know how even on my team, there doesn't happen a lot. Like I, I'm surprised that people don't stay a little longer in practice. I think anywhere in life, if like you talk about business or something like that, one is you do the right thing. Two is you just do a little bit more. That's how, that's how you get ahead. Um, and so for me, I literally, that was, I tried to stay longer to practice than anybody else. And <laughs> it, it was everything too. I would try to sneak in workouts like, so the teammates didn't know it. So I just measured myself to who I was with. Right. And if I did more than them, it gave me the confidence to be successful. I think I do it in coaching too. I, I have weird things that I do in my head. What I think about other coaches in the country and just doing little, little bit more. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I, I kind of add on. I, I thought about that when you said your kids were in the field. And, you know, the pro baseball players out there, nobody else is. Yeah. Um, that's, a, that's a powerful, powerful tool uh, to have in your quiver. Well, I'm telling you, it was, it was a special moment for me. I said, I have to take advantage of this moment right now and let them process this. Yeah. Because, like I said, you were, I mean, when I was younger, I didn't know. We, we spent the summers down the shore. Then we went up to Kearney, where I wrestled for Kearney High School. Um, you know, during the season. And had I known you could wrestle year round, maybe I would have been one. And nobody was really doing it back then. There was only a few. But the few that were doing it were definitely significantly better than those of us who weren't. Because when I'm kind of shaking some of their cobwebs and the rust off at the beginning, they've been doing it for months. And it showed, you know. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but, man, what a great sport. I'm really, really thankful that you took time to come on with us today and share some of your wisdom. I mean, I – I took a lot away from this and, and I'm so grateful for that. But is there anything else you want to add uh, before we wrap up? Uh, no, I really appreciate being on here. Um, I really, you know, if you can, I really love what we're doing at Princeton. Um, and I'm glad you, you follow us because it's a pretty cool ride as we really do work to be one of the best college athletic turnarounds of all time. I'm really glad you ha gave me an opportunity here to kind of talk about, some of the leadership traits that I think are necessary to get 
a program or an organization. It doesn't really matter if it's a sports program or anything, how to have organizational leadership to build uh, what you're trying to do. Um, So it's been fun. It's been awesome, man. I loved it. Well, thank you. And, And that's one of the things that I'm trying to do with this particular podcast is let people know you may not even follow wrestling. Maybe you never wrestled a day in your life, but you're leading a team in whatever arena or field that you're in. And you could still learn from someone who's doing what you guys are doing over there at Princeton and you specifically. So thanks for sharing your insight, Coach Harris. I appreciate it. I'm going to be following you. Good luck with uh, the upcoming season.